Welcome to this week's podcast from Free Chapel in Orange County. We hope that you enjoy this encouraging message. For more information on our church family, visit freechapel.org forward slash OC. So uh, this morning you could turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18 if you brought them. And if not, it'll be on the screen. And we're going to both continue and uh, kind of conclude this little mini collection that we've been doing beginning last week that we called This Must Be the Place. This Must Be the Place. And what we're talking about is the church. And uh, part of the um, thesis that we are working with is that the church is the vehicle that God has chosen to bring the hope of Jesus to the world that he loves. That's what the church is. It's, it's the vehicle that is kind of responsible for bringing the gospel to the world. Uniquely, this is the church um, that we are a part of. And this is kind of the church that, uh, you know, that, that, that is the most important expression of the will of God or, or of God's plan in the world that we have. Um, and so this must be the place. This church, let me just tell you today, the church is not a nonprofit. The church is not just another humanitarian organization. The church is the place that actualizes Jesus's prayer. When he prayed on earth as it is in heaven, that is the mission of the church. It's the place that we, we begin to, to make known or to, to actualize what Jesus prayed. Said another way, what happens in heaven should be a reflection of what happens in the church. And so that's what we're here to do this morning. That's what you are a part of. You're a part of the mission of God to bring the hope of Jesus and the reality of heaven to earth, to, to, to the world in which he loves. And so if you weren't with us last week, I want to encourage you to check that message out. It's an important uh, foundation for this week. You can find it either on, on YouTube or by way of the podcast. Um, but to say it simply, what, what God's plan for the world is, is to save people. And when he saves people, he adds them to his family. And that family is called the church. And he will use the church to show everybody else who he is and what heaven is like. I think that's pretty cool that God will use this gathering of people. You may have thought it was just an event. You may have thought it was just another uh, weekly ritual. But God's intention for our gathering here today is to be fueled up enough to go show the world what heaven is all about. And so this morning, um, we're going to continue on really part two of this, um, because in order to be this kind of place, how many know there's going to be some battles that we're going to have to fight? Everything in life that is valuable comes at a cost. And so there are going to be some battles that we're going to have to fight in order to be this kind of place. There is going to be a battle within and there's going to be a battle without. That's what we started talking about last week, that Jesus only uses the word church twice in the Bible. May come as a surprise to you, but Jesus explicitly talks about the church only on two occasions. The first time he mentions the word church is when he talks about um, in Matthew chapter 16 that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's where we went last week. And what we talked about was that the place that God builds upon is a declaration of faith in Jesus. In fact, I want to tell you here today, it's the only thing sturdy enough to build your life on. Everything else is too inconsistent and too unstable. Jesus says, not only is the, the declaration of faith in him the place that you need to build, but it's the place that he will build. And I want to tell you today that if God builds it, then it's his to protect. 
Even from the gates of hell, Jesus says, if you build upon this, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that's what Jesus talks about, that he will fight the battle of spiritual warfare. But today we're going to talk about the second battle, which is the battle of broken relationships. Ooh, all the spiritual people said, I love it. Both services just get them with the, ooh. The battle of broken relationships. Now, I want to preface uh, on two things. Number one, I know that a topic like this can come with a lot of baggage. There are very real hurts and very real um, um, pains and trauma that many people experience as a result of broken relationships. And this morning, I'm not going to make light of that. I'm not going to try and sweep it under the rug. We believe in, in mental health, of course, and trauma and, and therapy and the, the uh, importance of counseling. All that is true. But this morning, I simply want to deal with the relationships in this house. I want to deal with the relationships that are in the church and the kind of relationships I believe that we are meant to have. Because what Jesus essentially says is that I will take care of the gates of hell. But the second battle, the battle of broken relationships, is going to be your responsibility. Jesus says in these two areas, the two battles that the church is fighting, I'll take care of spiritual warfare. But when you have an offense, you have to take care of it. I'll fight the battle without on the outside, but you have to deal, us as a church have to deal with the battle on the inside. And what I want to share with you today is something that I've had a journey through in my own life. And I, I just want to say, I, I believe it's probably one of the most important principles that you can grab a hold of this morning. Something that I, I know can change your life. Not because of anything that I'm going to say. In fact, my, my job this morning is to get out of the way for you to hear from God. But I believe that the principle found here in the scriptures is one of the most helpful things that I've found in dealing with this topic of broken relationships. And I want to preach from the title, An Option for Offense. An Option for Offense. Matthew chapter 18, picking up in verse 15, Jesus is teaching and he says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Notice Jesus says, don't tell him it's his fault. Tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens, then you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, then take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two to three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen uh, to them, then tell it to the church. That's the word we're looking for. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In verse 18, which is the correlation, it's going to be the connection between these two passages of Scripture in Matthew 16 and Matthew chapter 18. Jesus explicitly teaches about the authority of the church to make very real the will of God. In verse 18, this will be familiar if you joined us last week. It says, truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Jesus is saying that what happens in heaven should very re, re, the very reality of it should be a reflection of what happens here on the, in the church. And, and the, the, the will or the authority that the church is given is to make that a reality for, for whatever is a yes in the church is a yes in heaven. Vice versa, whatever is a no in the church is a no in heaven. In verse 19, he says, again, I say to you, for if two or three on earth agree about anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Verse 21, after Jesus had been teaching, Peter 
came to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I have to forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. An option for offense. Last year, we had uh, one of the great opportunities to host um, Dr. Gary Chapman with us in some of our services. Maybe you remember that if you were with us. Um, Dr. Chapman is among maybe the most prolific and uh, uh, profound relational experts, not just in the church, but really in our world today. He's the author of Five Love Languages. And while he was with us, I remember asking him a question. I said, what is the... Um, the, the hardest part, after all the counseling that you've done and after all the relationships that you've seen and from premarital counseling to working with churches and staff, what is um, you know, the, the, the biggest challenge that you've seen people have to overcome? And without hesitating, Dr. Chapman, he had said, the biggest challenge when, in regards to relationships is the inability to resolve conflict. He said, it's not about what happened. It's about not knowing how to resolve it. And then he said this, for people simply do not know how to act when they are hurt. We've all experienced this. People simply do not know how to act when they're hurt. I mean, I've just learned after so many years of ministry and working with people and kind of being in this, the people business, I've just learned you can count on people offending you. Can I get a witness this morning? You can count on people offending you. I mean, relational conflict is just simply too easy. It seems like it's something we too often struggle with. I, I, I've just seen it time and time again. I have been beside myself in offense over a parking spot in my apartment complex. You took my spot again. I have been after after so much hard work and, and team building and, and laboring together in prayer for six years of marriage, we still can't agree on the thermostat. 74 is too warm for the house. Anybody with me? If you're going over 74, we, there's like a lizard thing happening, okay? We got to bring that thing. I will push the thermostat button so passive aggressively, looking at my wife, down, down, down. We still can't agree on the third. There's offenses all over. Even in the church, this can happen. Maybe you pulled into the church this morning and someone took the spot that you were supposed to park in. Or someone sat in the seat that you always sit in. And that's the chair that you prayed over. And that's the chair that you encountered Jesus in. And how dare somebody sit in your seat? Walking into church today, the greeters did so well of passing out communion, and you had your eye on one communion, and the person in front of you took the cracker that you wanted. Let me just tell you, they're all the same. We don't, we don't buy them from Jerusalem. They're, they're just crackers. You can count in life on people offending you. It's, it's just part of it. Of course, I'm being playful this morning, but we've all experienced this. We've seen people that don't know how to act when they're hurt. And instead of dealing with it, they end up just walking away or giving up from people, giving up on relationships. I've seen people walk away from friendships, not knowing how to resolve conflict. I've seen people walk away from community, not knowing how to resolve conflict, walking away from marriages because they're hurt. Even, even my generation, people are walking away from God, walking away from faith under this pop culture brand of deconstruction. But do you know what it is at its core? It's just unresolved hurt. And instead of people learning how to deal with their hurt, 
they end up just giving up on relationships and giving up on God and giving up on people. And it's really important today that we, we get this piece right because relationships are a really big deal to God. Not just our relationship with him, but even our relationships with each other. You know, God cares more about, God cares about more than just your spiritual life. He cares about all of you. Even your relationships with each other are, are a really big deal to God. And the moment we let, see, any hurt that goes unresolved will ultimately turn into bitterness and resentment and cynicism, which is a terrible way to live. It's not the life that God has designed for you. If we were to take it all the way back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, the Bible says that God created humanity. It says that there he saw Adam and he said it was not good for man to be alone. And there, the first problem that we see in the Bible was not a problem of sin. The first problem was isolation. And what's interesting to me is that God creates us. He creates people. He creates humanity, not just with a hole in our heart or a desire or a need for him. He also creates us with a need for each other. And watch, because God even says in that need for community, it's a space in our heart that even he is not willing to fill. I hear people all the time say, you know, it's just me and Jesus. And I'm like, I hear you, but it's just not true. We need each other. We need community. It's part of the way that God designed this life to live. In fact, you can't live the fullness of, of, of this life on earth without the right kind of community and the right kind of relationships. In fact, let me just say this. I don't believe that you can practically be a Christian by yourself. We need community. We need each other. This is simply the way that God has designed it. This is why we need people. This is why we have people that, that each week gather around Orange County in connect groups, not because they need another event or because they need friends or because they have nothing better to do. The reason why connect groups are such a priority of this house is because we understand that while we can worship together on Sunday morning, spiritual growth happens in the context of community. This is a journey. It's meant to be walked out, not alone, but with people surrounding us. And we need, desperately need people in such a place that God says that hole in your heart is one that you need him and you need the right kind of relationships in your life. And the enemy is, is aware of the need that we have for community, that he will try and get the upper hand on the fight, that he will use the storm of division and isolation to cut us off from God and from God's people. Let me say it to you like this. If you can think today, this morning, about the worst things in life that you have done, the things that you wish you never did, the things that you wish nobody knew about, the things that you are not willing to address, I would argue that those things were done either in isolation or separated from godly relationships. It's the power of community. That's why we need each other. You know, when we read the scriptures, we see that it is God's unmistakable purpose to gather together a people, to gather a people together that are called by his name. We see that it is God's intention to gather together a community, a people that are called by his name and that would be his alone. In fact, the word that Jesus uses for church is a word for community, is a word for, for people. Which is, it's worth maybe to repeat the old cliche here this morning that church is not a building. Church is a people. 
is a community. It's, it's not just the space that we gather, but it's what happens when the people of God get together under the common declaration of Jesus as Lord. It's a community that said God is our God and we will be his people. That's what the church is. And that's what Jesus is after to try and to build. Many of us, we, we, we experience this need for community and, and we need the family of God that we call the church in order to, to live and to grow the way that God had intended. But how many know the problem with community is that community is messy. People are messy. They're broken. All of us are messed up. And you know what? I love, I hear people all the time. They'll be like, oh, I don't go to church. I'll ask people, you know, you know, you want to come to church with me? Ah, oh, hypocrites. <laughs> How many people, this is like, you've heard this before. Oh, hypocrites. I don't want to go to church. I'm like, you want to, you want to, I want to say to them, welcome to the club. All of us are hypocrites. Even, and I'm like, is it any better outside of the church? No, because you think of the things that you value most. Oh, you know what? The, the highest moral code. I can't, I, I, you have to be trustworthy. Well, you are not even trustworthy all the time. Oh, I can't, you have to be honest to be, I can't stand liars. Well, you have lied. And if you're not willing to say that you have, it's a lie. <laughs> We're all hypocrites. And this is what, this is the, the reality of the community that we are a part of. We're not a perfect church, but it's in actually in facing our weaknesses and facing our failures and facing our flaws that we bring them to Jesus in light of the one who can perfect us. It's not about being perfect, but it's about being perfected. That's what this gathering is about. Eugene Peterson said, the church isn't meant to be a model of good behavior. It's to be a place that brings our weaknesses out in the open and deals with them. That's why we've got to learn this community piece. That's why we've got to understand really that this metaphor, you know, I'll stand with couples many times at the altar of marriage and there the happy couple is you know, blissfully kind of a, uh, just in awe of the moment and they're looking into each other's eyes. And one of the things I'll say in uh, a wedding message is I kind of approach the couple is I'll tell them, it's just a, a line that I've kind of held on to over the past couple of years. And I'll look at every couple that gets married and I'll tell them the, the every quality about the other person is perfectly designed by God to perfect love and virtue in you. And I'll tell them that the qualities that you like and the qualities that you have yet to like are actually designed by God to perfect something in you. You know, this is how community works. And I would suggest to you today that part of the flaws and part of the failures are actually God's curriculum to teach you the value of how he loves us. It's not about being perfect community. It's about understanding that God will oftentimes bring in messy people and teach us the part of being a messy community in order to teach us the value of how he loves, to teach us the value of how he forgives, to teach us the value of his grace and of his mercy. God will often, you know how God will perfect in us the fruit of the spirit by sending us frustrating people. God, make me more patient. You know how that prayer gets answered? You already know. God, help me to, we pray, God, give me a heart like yours. Help me to love people like you do. And God will send you broken, messed up people because that's how he loves. And that's what the church is meant to be. 
And it's not just God's plan for your life, but it's also God's plan for our world. Second Corinthians chapter five, Paul writes to the church and he says, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and a new life has begun. The gospel should change the way that you live. You don't get to be a Christian and still get to live bitter. It changes things. And so he says the old life is gone. The old way of doing things, the old way of thinking, the old way of relating to people, the old way of throwing away relationships when you are frustrated or hurt or stabbed in the back, that's gone. And the new you has begun. And he said, all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. But he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. Another translation said he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. See, this is what happens is if we have experienced forgiveness found in the cross, then the point of what Paul is trying to say is, is that if that forgiveness has come to us, then forgiveness should come through us. That if love has come to us, then love must come through us. Even to the point of saying if reconciliation between us and God, the relationship that we have, God lives in, we've all offended him. It's called sin. And the relationship that was the most broken has been restored and reconciled because of the person of Jesus. And what the gospel teaches is that because we have been reconciled to God again, we now have the power and the precedence to reconcile every other relationship in our life. See, the gospel is essentially about healing relationships. The gospel employs us to drop our differences and make them right between us so that we can persuade others about what God has done for them. See, it's in, it's in setting aside the things that would so easily divide us, the things that would so easily cause conflict and, and stand together and fight for the family of God that is called the church. That's what God has tasked us with and employed us with to teach other people the value of what God has done for them. For, let me remind you, it was Jesus who said, this, by this, they will know, they will know you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. The way that people can tell that you're a Christian is not your Instagram bio. It's not the songs that you put on your Spotify playlist. It's not posting about the Free Chapel music release. The way that people should know that you're a Christian is the love that you have for the relationships in your life. Jesus thought it so important. He says he allows the world to judge the authenticity of our message simply by the quality of our relationships. This is how big of a deal relationships are to God. He says that by the quality of your relationships, people should be able to tell how authentic you are about the message you preach about the gospel that you proclaim, this life-changing message to say, I've been born again. I've been made new. I've been transformed by Christ. The authenticity of that should be judged by how well your relationships are. For this you will know, you will be known as my disciples by the way that you love one another. See, conflict, division, non-reconciliation actually jeopardize our witness. 
And this is why it's so important for us to get right, because the strategy of the enemy would love to divide and conquer, to tear us apart and to break us, because actually in the division that stands within this house, we lose the power of the message that we preach. And if Jesus, if what he has done is true, then neither career, nor class, nor status, nor culture, nor history, nor background, things that we can divide us, none of that is a cause for division in Jesus. That's what the Bible teaches. It's what the Bible says about standing for unity. And I want to say to you today that all the attempts in our world to try and unite apart from God are in vain. It is only the gospel that is strong enough to unite prodigals and foreigners and outcasts and sinners. It is only the cross of Jesus Christ, only the message of gospel that can bring the kind of unity that our world needs. And what better time, what better message than the church to rise up and to say, I'm going to fight for my family, the family of God. I'm not going to put an adjective before the word Christian. I'm not this kind of Christian or that kind of Christian. I'm just part of the family of God. And you know what? In this family, we fight for one another. That is the authenticity of the message that we have. So all of that is an introduction to what Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 18. Think about this. Jesus in his life thought it so important, thought relationships as such a big deal that he actually walks us through the Holy Spirit grid on how to resolve our conflicts. Jesus teaches literally step by step by step the right way to get over our offenses, because if broken relationships are not an option, then what is the option? Two options here for us to take note of today. The first option, as far as I can tell, according to the Bible, when it comes to overcoming your offense is to number one, cover it, cover your offense. I was speaking to somebody recently. I love the idea of what they said. They said, if I spoke up every time my friends annoyed me, I would have no friends. (laughs) How many know that's not just wisdom that is biblical. Covering an offense is, is wise and it's biblical Proverbs. 19, it's the book of wisdom. It says a a person's wisdom yields patience and it is to one's glory to overlook an offense. See, there's something merciful about believing the best in others. There's something that's actually uh, important and merciful and blessed about honoring people enough to not stir up trouble every time you get offended. I think that's why in the the passage that we read here this morning, Jesus teaches us on how to resolve our differences. And Peter's response is like, okay, okay, I'm going to forgive people. But like, how much should I really do that? Because like, you know, I can forgive people, but you know, we're all offended so, so much. Jesus looks at Peter and and Peter kind of says, okay, should I, should I forgive people seven times? You know, like, What you need to know is about the teaching of this time. Rabbis would teach that we should forgive people three times and no more. So after that, it becomes a pattern. So Jesus or Peter asked Jesus and he's like shooting for the stars. He's like, I've heard it said, forgive people three times. But should we forgive people then? Like, according to what you said, like seven times. Wow. So generous, Peter. So, so loving and so forgiving seven times. Jesus says, not quite, because remember who you're talking to. He says, how about you try and 
forgive 70 times seven, which is 490. You're like, I didn't come to church for math. <laughs> I would have said that. 490. 490 isn't the, the point of that is not to, to keep track. It's not like we should, um, you know, everyone gets a bank account of 490 offenses. <laughs> How many know after six years of marriage, I would have been up? 490 of, because, you know, I love how one person said it. It's like all of us kind of have this mental list of like the offenses for people. Like, the, okay, your bank account is running low and offenses. And I love how one person said it. It said, when people get hysterical, they get historical. <laughs> you left the toilet seat up. When? 2004. <laughs> the point isn't that we have this bank account of 490 offenses. C.S. Lewis, I love what he said. It's probably the best revelation. He says it's not 490 offenses, but the same offense 490 times. See, forgiving for a moment is easy, but forgiving over and over and over, that's the, the, fat, the battle. That's the fight. The challenge is continuing to forgive, but it teaches us the value of how God forgives us. See, this is the radical mercy of God. God's generosity is so absurd by our standards that 490 is probably better understood as endless. God, how many times should I forgive this person because they keep offending me? God would say, as many times as it takes. See, forgiveness is not about what people have done to us. Forgiveness is about what Jesus has done for us. See, forgiveness isn't even about really the other person. It's about you. Unforgiveness can turn to bitterness. Bitterness, offense, offense, resentment. You live that way, it'll steal your joy. It'll steal your, it'll steal your revelation. It'll steal the community that God has brought into your life. He says, forgive people as many times as it would take. And in order to cover an offense, we need to understand God's love for us. First Peter chapter 4 says, that at, above all, keep on loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Well, Peter is beginning to say, obviously learning the lessons much later in his life. He says, because I continue in love, I forgive. See, to not forgive is to lose sight of love. I want to tell you today, when love is a habit, forgiveness is a reflex covering an offense. The Bible doesn't say that it's easy to forgive. It doesn't say even that it's natural to forgive. The Bible says it's Christian to forgive, not because of what people have done to me, but because of what Jesus has done for me. See, he is my source. And if there's still forgiveness available for me, then how dare I withhold it from the people in my life? If there's still forgiveness available with God, if he is my source that I've got a tap to pour it out of. It's not about my, what, I, what I would determine of who's worthy and who's not worthy. See, we've all offended God, and still he forgives absurdly generously. And so we ought to pour it out to the people in our world. But the moment you stop forgiving is the moment you lose sight of the cross. The moment you stop forgiving is the moment you lose sight of, your cross, of the cross. This is where you have to decide. The hurt that we experience, the offense that we hold on to. You have to decide who, who, who wins in this? Who gets the final say about forgiveness, me or God? Because if he can forgive us, 
And part of what this message is, is that we have the precedent to forgive the people in our life. And Jesus says, I'm committed so much to your relationships that I'll commit to your relationship, even if it takes 490 times to get it resolved. So there's some times where we have to cover an offense, which is very biblical. How do I do that? By looking inward to the cross of Jesus that has been poured out for me. The second option that we have in offense, if we can't cover it, then it would be to confront it. Confront an offense. Now, I know that seems like a swear word in 2022. Confront. Oh, I would never. Oh, my gosh. Confrontation. We're scared of it. Worried about. But Jesus gives us the pattern. Now, now think of this. When Jesus said in verse 20, where two or three are gathered, my presence will be found there in their midst. I cannot tell you how many prayer meetings I have been in where that verse has been used as an excuse for bad attendance. They'd say, oh, you know, like there's, I know, there's only a few of us here tonight, but where two or three are gathered, his presence is there. That has got to be the most abused verse in the Bible. I thought one time about doing a message of all the misused verses in the scriptures. I think that would take number one. You think, oh, where two or three are gathered. Let me just say it to you like this way. It wasn't like 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to his disciples and said, okay, guys, as you build the church and as you do this thing, there's going to be times where people don't show up. And so here's what you need to say to make sure that everyone stays encouraged. Are you serious? That's not what Jesus wasn't teaching us about a bad attendance verse. Nothing could be further from the truth. And this is why context matters, because Jesus doesn't say when bad attendance comes, two or three are gathered and everything's going to be good. He says, when two or three are gathered, where? In the context of fixing broken relationships. That's where my presence is found. See, we don't even need two or three people. There, this book is filled with stories of people who encountered God all by themselves. You don't need two to three people to hear God's voice. You can do that all by yourself. He's God. You could be in your car. You could be on the treadmill. You could be working in the lawn or sitting at your office desk. You could be streaming online. He's God. He can speak to whoever he wants. We don't need Sean. We don't need free chapel music to help hear God's voice and, and stir up the presence. We can do that all by ourselves. But Jesus says conflict resolu resolution, reconciliation is so important to me that when two people get together with a heart to reconcile, my presence will be found there in their midst. Isn't that so much better than a bad attendance verse? What a great promise that is, that when two people get together and they want to resolve conflict the right way, when one person says, hey, you know what, I'm holding on to this offense and I want to forgive you, and two people get together, whether it be in, in family relationships or in marriages or even in co-working relationships or here at the church to say, we're not going to stand for just holding on to our conflict and our division. My heart is to reconcile. And that's where God's presence is found. Some of you have been wondering, how do I feel God's presence? Try resolving your conflict. Because the promise of Jesus is that when two people get together with a heart to reconcile, I consider it so important you can count me in. See, it's always more rewarding to resolve a conflict than it is to dissolve a relationship. Notice here what Jesus says Verse 18, whose responsibility it is. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, you go to them. It's not the one who offended you that has to come. 
It's the one who's offended that has to go. See, we will do anything we can to pout and sulk and ignore, to try and get people to come to us. Because there is a pride in all of us that would rather be right than reconciled. Say, oh, is everything okay? Yeah, fine. You sure? Is it fine? Everything, everything's fine. <laughs> we'll do anything we can to get people to try and come to us. But you know what? Jesus says that's your responsibility. If there's an offense that you're holding on to, you have to go to them. And to try and make people do what is your responsibility, do you know what that's called? Manipulation. Many of us, the word we may need to hear this morning is to just simply repent for this, the need to always be right. We place a higher value on being right and justified than actually reconciling the broken relationships in our life. Maybe that's where it starts for you today, just to say, you know what, I'm going to, Lord, forgive me for the need to always be right. Because I want to I take your word seriously and have reconciliation be, be the thing that guides me, be the, the, the driving factor that I will lay down my life in love for the community that I'm a part of. That's what this is. To be defined by the love of Christ is to be defined by a love that will lay down your life for your brother. How do I do that? How do I cover? How do I confront? It's by understanding the love that God has for us and extending it to others. See, forgiveness, it doesn't change the past, but it does change the future. That's what I want to tell you here today. Forgiveness is, is not changing your past. It happened. But it does change your future by walking in freedom. It changes your future by experiencing the healing hand of God upon your situation. It's not, not just minor offenses. There's some real offenses people have been holding on to. challenge I want to offer you here today is to find freedom, to give it to Jesus, to say, God, if you can forgive me, then I can. I'm, I'm wrong to withhold forgiveness from, from anybody else in my life. You know, about this time every year, I'll read a, a book. It's one of my favorite books called The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. It's about 120 pages. It's fiction. It's a story of a bus ride from hell to heaven. And the story is they'll take people that are in hell and they'll bring them on a tourist trip to heaven. There in the story, there's one scene that I was reading this week that really grabbed my attention. It was a woman who was on the bus and she had a, um, a demonic figure, a, a devil on her shoulder. And there the angel figure that represents Jesus in the story approaches the woman and says, hey, I, I noticed that there's something there on your shoulder. Do you want me to take that from you? And she politely refuses. She said, no, 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 I don't want to be a hassle. I don't want to bring attention to myself. I said, no, 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 I'm good. One more time, the angel asks, and he says, let me take that from you. And there the devil speaks up on her shoulder and says, don't let him do it. I promise I won't say anything ever again. One more time, the angel presses in and says, let me take that from you. I can tell that it's causing you hurt and pain. The devil it speaks up in her ear and says, don't let him do it. It's going to hurt. Last time, the angel presses in and says, let me take that from you. 
And it may be the way that only C.S. Lewis can describe, says that she hands it over and he throws it in just a mystical way. The, the devil transforms into a white horse that rides on towards the hill or the, the mountain of salvation. Here's what I felt like the Holy Spirit was saying to us this morning. Many of us have been holding on to hurt, holding on to offense, and the enemy has been lying in our ear, saying, don't let anybody know about it. I promise I won't say anything again. I won't bother you anymore. Saying that, don't let anybody see. It's, it's going to hurt if they push that place in your heart. The voice of the Holy Spirit is there asking us today, let me take that from you. Let me take your hurt. Let me take your, your offense. Let me take the bitterness. The things of our heart that feel like we don't want anybody else to know. Jesus is asking, can I take that from you? To lay our burdens at his feet and to experience the love and the freedom and the forgiveness that is found at the cross. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. To watch our latest message, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel. To stay connected, follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Free Chapel OC.